Good morning, Missio. Please join me in the reading of God's Word. This comes from John 15, 26 through John 16, 11. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been given or you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong, about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Well, again, welcome. So good to have you this morning. Happy Father's Day. If you are a father or you're celebrating Father's Day, happy Juneteenth as you celebrate tomorrow. So good to be with you. Uh, We are in a series right now entitled Breathe, exploring the work and the person and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And over the last couple of weeks, since the beginning of this series, on Pentecost Sunday, we have tried to dive into what is the Spirit doing? What is the Spirit accomplishing? And how do we, as the church, as Jesus' people, participate in the work of the Spirit? And so week one, we talked about how the Spirit is continuing the active work of Jesus in the world around us. That if we look for a framework or a foundation or a set of understandings to help us know what Spirit is doing, we look to Jesus. And Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16, the chapter we just read, keeps saying that the Spirit advocates on behalf of Jesus, testifies about Jesus, makes known Jesus, helps remind us the things that Jesus has been teaching. So the Spirit is continuing the work of Jesus. And then the week after that, we talked about how Spirit is a companion. The NIV uses the word advocate. Some translations use the word encourager or comforter. The Message Bible, Eugene Peterson, says friend. The Spirit is a friend, which I really like. We talk about how the Spirit is a friend or a companion who comes alongside of us on the way to guide us towards Jesus, to help us experience the love and life of Jesus. Paul prays in Ephesians that I, he says, I pray that the Spirit would be in you to strengthen you so that you would know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Like this love is so big, you need someone's help to grasp it, and that's the work of the Spirit in and through you. And then last week, Heather talked about how the Spirit is speaking to us in love and encouragement, reminding us of the instructions of Jesus and who we are and how we belong to Jesus. So that's the work that we have been doing, and we're going to continue talking about the Spirit today in John chapter 16. And the words that Jesus says today in John chapter 16, are so fascinating. They're so interesting 
to me. And in some ways, what Jesus says about the Spirit here in John 16 is kind of, for me personally, what motivated this entire series. Because I've been wrestling with some questions and some frustrations, and then meditating on Jesus' words in this moment in John 16 have just been sort of like rattling around in my brain ever since. And the words, I think, are really encouraging. I think we'll find them very, very helpful. But if I'm honest, they are also very frustrating. Sometimes Jesus says things that are just annoying. And this is one of those moments where Jesus says something that I think is very good news, but also a bit frustrating. Because Jesus is talking about the work of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit in the world. And in this moment, we are confronted with an uncomfortable fact that the Spirit has jobs that I do not have. The Spirit has a role, has a vocation, has a set of responsibilities that are not mine, but they are my favorite to take on. (laughs) The Spirit has a job that I really would like to be my job, if you know what I mean. And here's, here's, here's an example of this, and here's what I mean, and here's the thing I think we're getting into in this conversation. There will be moments in your life as followers of Jesus, there will be moments in your life as humans, let me just broaden this up a bit, where you experience conflict. And it is a kind of conflict that will make you go insane. It's a kind of conflict when you run into somebody And you both feel so entrenched about the beliefs that you hold. And you're like, I'm making good arguments, and they won't see anything that I'm saying. I just want to shake them into belief. Like, why can't you just see it my way? Why can't I just convince you that I am right? Because obviously I am. Right? There's moments in the human experience where you will run into entrenched, stuck kinds of conflict. Maybe you're trying to tell somebody about your beliefs. Maybe you're trying to have a theological conversation with another Christian, and as you're having this conversation with another Christian, you're like talking theology, you're talking Bible, and you're like, yeah, we're going to agree about these things. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, you're crazy. (laughs) What? Or maybe you're trying to advocate for justice, and you're trying to work for the things that you care about, and you're in the city, or you're in your home group, or you're in your family, and you're trying to advocate for something you believe is right and true and good, and as you're having these conversations or shuffling or advocating, you're like, why can't you see it? You don't see this as a problem? You don't see that this is wrong? You don't see that this is poisoned? You don't see the problem here? Trying to tell somebody about Jesus can have a similar experience. There is just these moments in the life of a Christian or just the life of a human Well, you will run into conflict that feels so deeply entrenched, that feels so stuck that you don't know what to do about it. You don't know how to convince the other person to believe something different. None of your arguments seem to work. None of your advocacy seems to shift the ground. Nothing you do seems to affect change. Have you ever been in that situation? If you've ever been having that conversation, which I imagine everyone in here has at some point in their life, you know how deeply frustrating it can be. And not just frustrating, you know how painful it can be. To feel like you care about something, to feel like there is a right and you just keep running into a wall. 
And the question becomes, what do we do about that kind of entrenched ideological conflict? And I think that's what Jesus is talking about with his disciples in this moment. What do you do or what do you not do when you run into entrenched ideological conflict? And the reason Jesus is telling us this is because there is more than one way to respond. There is a way to respond, I think, like Jesus, in sacrificial love, a way that creates life and light and more room and belonging that actually heals and brings wholeness and unravels hostility. And then there is a way to respond, which is probably what we are most familiar with, that feels like exclusion and hostility and abuse. There is a way to respond that is life-giving and hopeful, and then there is a way to respond that is about control and force and coercion and exclusion. We may not think of it as that way all the time, but it is often the result. And I think Jesus is warning and preparing his disciples and trying to instruct them and us into a different way of life with the Spirit that might lead to something in our conflict that is different. So let's pick up here in John chapter 16. Jesus is with his disciples, and John 14, 15, 16 are the last kind of moments that Jesus is with his followers. So we've gotten the Last Supper, we've gotten the feet washing, we've gotten Peter's denial or refusal to believe that he's going to deny and Jesus predicting it. We've had all of these moments are in these last three chapters. So we're minutes before Jesus is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and begin to pray, before he's arrested, before he's tried, before he's crucified. And he is preparing his disciples for what is about to be a very difficult series of events for them. They're about to lose their friend, their Messiah, their rabbi. Their whole world's about to be shook by his departure. And so he's trying to prepare them for what that is going to be like in each of these chapters, he's been kind of giving them different instructions and comfort and guidance and wisdom. And in John 16, he says this thing that is a hard truth, but I think really important for us to pay attention to. 16 verse 1 through 2, he says this, All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. This is going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. So I'm trying to prepare you, I'm trying to help you, I'm trying to give you some instructions so that you do not fall away. And then he says this, they will put you out of the synagogue. They will exclude you from church. You will not be able to worship together. The places that you considered safe and friendly and homely, they will remove you from. You want to worship with your family? Well, they're going to kick you out. They will remove you from the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming When anyone who kills you even will think they are offering a service to God. That's a harrowing truth. He says, you will be excluded, you will be persecuted, you will experience conflict, and it will be painful and it will be difficult. And here's the most difficult part about it. The people who do this to you will think they are in the right. They will think they're serving God. They'll think they're doing it in the name of what is holy and what is righteous. They think that they are performing a service on behalf of God. They are so deeply in 
entrenched in their own ideological convictions that what they do to you and what they do against you, they believe is good. You're going to experience conflict, and it is going to be complicated because everybody in this conflict believes they're the good guy. So I want to prepare you for this kind of conflict. A kind of conflict, a kind of difficulty that when people hurt you or harass you, they believe that they are in the right. I think this is important for us to pay attention to because even though our world is different and the position in society that we occupy is different than the disciples, we still run into this same dynamic. The dynamic of where our ideological entrenchment can lead to conflict, and conflict in good intentions even. Where our values and our beliefs and our philosophies and our worldviews shape the way that we think, and that's good and that is right and that is how we're supposed to be, but that they so shape the way we think that we get trapped in a sort of self-justifying cycle. Most of our ideologies are rooted in something really good. Like in this moment, their desire is to do a service for God. That's a pretty good desire. But the problem is that our ideologies are self-justifying, which makes them really difficult to diagnose. They're hard to name, especially when they are our own. When that's the worldview that we are operating out of. So we will, in the name of really good things, often do terrible things. There's this really haunting moment in the Psalms where God accuses Israel of this behavior. And I I always think about this moment. It's Psalm 50, verse 2, or verse 20. God is talking to Israel, and he says this, You sit around talking about your own siblings. You find fault with the children of your own mother. You have done these things, and I've kept quiet. That's God saying, I've kept quiet. And you thought I was just like you. But now I am laying it out right in front of your face. This moment is so haunting to me because these are God's people. They're the people who have the prophets. They have Torah. They have the law. They have Moses. They have history. They have the temple. Everything that you could possibly want in order to be connected to God in the Old Testament setting, Israel has. And yet God is like, you think I'm like you? I am nothing like you. You have justified some terrible things in my name, and you are convinced that I am just like you. I think this is important for us to understand and to wrestle with and to name for a handful of reasons. One, just because this is what Jesus is talking about, but also because we as Christians today are not immune to this. Like if Israel can succumb to its own ideological convictions and self-justification, then so can we. We are not immune to being unable to diagnose ourselves. And I think in a strange way, that helps me actually have a lot of empathy, not only for myself, but for other people who I disagree with or find myself in conflict with. But more importantly, I think the reason this is important to name and the reason Jesus is preparing us and his disciples with this kind of conversation 
is that when we enter into this kind of conflict, this kind of ideologically entrenched conflict, conflict that doesn't seem resolvable because everybody believes they're doing what is right, we have some options on our hand about how we respond, about what we do in this moment. And I think Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples and us because the temptation and the easiest way to respond is with control. It's to try to control an outcome that is favorable to us. It is to try to force our convictions, our beliefs onto someone or something. And a good example of this just happened recently. I'm going to try not to name names. I don't normally like to do this, but I just think it's been in the news, so we're going to talk about it. Recently in the news this week, a large denomination made a decision to exclude churches from participation in that denomination who ordained women into leadership. That's a wrong position. Um, But that's not really the thing that I would like to name. I think that's a wrong position. I think women should be serving in all positions of leadership, and the church is, like, desperate for women in leadership. (laughs) But here's the issue that I think is more frightening about that to me, or the thing that makes this relevant for this conversation today, is that the response of this large-scale denomination was to exclude churches from participation in the denomination who had ordained women. Is that the only tool that we have when we disagree? That's why, I just think that's wild to me. That people who are supposed to be united on Jesus are instead divided by this position. Like, what, what happened to, to wild? But I think the reason we do this is because we only know so many tools of handling disagreement or conflict. And the easiest one, the, the one that we go to fastest, is to exclude or to force out or to push out to get away from, to get black and white, to draw clear lines in the sand because it is easier. It gives me a sense of certainty. It gives me a sense of control. It allows me to coerce a situation to be exactly what I want it to be. Exclusion is a kind of forceful, controlling, coercive response to disagreement. It's not the only way that we can respond to disagreement that is coercive. Sometimes we make threats. Sometimes we use guilt or shame or fear to try to manipulate or manage a situation into our own interests. I think what happens is that when we turn to tools of control to manage conflict, I think we lose what is meant to make us Jesus-y. This is always a conflict and a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Constantly, the disciples are struggling to understand cross-shaped power. Creative, life-giving, renewing, non-coercive power that Jesus is always showing up with. The very first temptation, or the major temptation that Jesus experiences when he's in the wilderness, is a temptation that the devil offers him between what? the sword and the cross. Do you choose the way of life-giving power or do you force your way into the world? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to choose the way of the cross, Peter comes to him and it's like, no, Lord, messiahs don't die. They kill. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. 
And when Jesus is rejected from a town, James and John are like, hey, do you want us to call down thunder on it? I think we have that power. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Have you learned nothing from me? That's not how this thing works. That's not how we operate in the world. But I think the problem for the disciples is the same problem that we often have, is that we are more discipled by the power of coercion in this world, Rome, Babylon, America, than we are by the kingdom of Jesus. And so a kind of power that is creative and life-giving and non-coercive makes no sense. So Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples what does it look like for you to be Jesus-y? What does it look like for you to live with the Spirit when everything in you will want to seize for control when you experience conflict? When everything in you will want to grab the sword and fight the empire, when everything in you will want to punch that dude in the face, when everything in you will want to shake your uncle until he can't see straight. Like you're like, When everything in you wants to go that direction, Jesus is like, hold up. There's a different way to do this. And to this moment, Jesus says, you look at verse 7 through 8, Jesus says something remarkable. He says, I assure you that it is better for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the companion, the advocate, the friend, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, watch this, he will show the world, show the world that it was wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. You're going to experience conflict. It's going to feel so deeply entrenched. It's going to feel so deeply stuck. People are going to chase you out of their towns. People are going to harass you. You're going to be excluded from the synagogue. And everything in you will want to leap for the sword to control that. Everything will want to put your hands on the wheel and grip it and control it. But I am sending the companion, the advocate, your friend, and it is Spirit's job to show the world its sin, not yours. It is Spirit's job to prove, is sometimes the word that's there, show, reveal the world its sin, not yours. You do not carry that responsibility. You do not carry that burden. You do not carry that weight. That's Spirit's job. It is not your job to try to disrupt someone's entrenched ideology or convince them they're not the good guy anymore. You're not going to do it. Have you ever tried? It's very hard. You always lose. That's my experience. This is what this sermon is coming from, is all my experiences failing at this job. (laughs) It's not your job to disrupt ideology. It is not your job to unravel all of the confusion and chaos that bundles up inside of each and every one of us that creates the worldviews that we have. That is not your role. You can't carry that. You cannot force someone to do that. That doesn't mean we don't have a role. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it is the job of spirit to deal with sin, ideology, self-justifying good intentions. And that is true of others, and it is true of ourselves. The Spirit comes like a companion 
That language we took this two weeks ago means to come alongside of. Sometimes it includes to kneel besides. The Spirit kneels besides us. And then the word show in Greek often has paternal implications, which I just think is beautiful. So you have this image of someone who comes like a friend or a parent who loves you and cares for you and is revealing and showing something that is destroying you, that is hurting you, that is harming you, that's harming those around you. The Spirit comes like a companion moving alongside of us to show, to reveal sin. It is Spirit's job to enter hostility and unravel tangled mess. It is Spirit's job to transform hearts from stone to love. That's the promise of the Old Testament prophets. I'll put my Spirit within you and transform your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It is Spirit's job to move through dry valleys and give life to dry bones. It is Spirit's job to hover over the surface of the waters and bring life into existence, not yours. The Spirit is the agent of revelation, of change, of new life, who in non-coercive, sacrificial love, the love of the cross, that Jesus' work comes alongside of us to heal, renew, reveal, and transform. Our job is to take off that responsibility to lay down the sword, to let go the wheel, to relax your knuckles, to erase our lines, and to submit ourselves to the renewing, life-giving work of the Spirit. My favorite example of this comes in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we get the conversion of the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, becomes the Apostle Paul, writes a lot of the Bible, kind of a big deal. <laughs> but before Paul is the Paul we know, he is a guy named Saul, which is very confusing. And he is a zealot against the church. That's how he describes himself. In Philippians 3, 4, he says this about himself, just as a little bit of context. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Saul is a man who is full of good intentions and self-justifying convictions. So much so that Saul goes to the religious authority of the day and asks for written permission to go and persecute the new church of Jesus. And he receives it. And so he begins to do this work, and the text says he breathes out threats, and he takes people to jail, and sometimes even it leads to people's death. This is a man who is so deeply committed to his cause and his purpose that he would do harm, feeling totally convinced the whole way that he was the good guy. And one day when he's on a journey towards a town called Damascus, he's heading on this journey very specifically to go and persecute or harass the church. That's his own language from the book of Acts. He is confronted by the Spirit of Jesus. Here's what the text says in Acts chapter 9. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? 
And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are harassing. It's always interesting to see who Jesus identifies with. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. So they picked up Saul from the ground, and he tried to open his eyes but could not see. It's this marvelous moment. Saul's on the road. He is confronted by the Spirit of Jesus. It is a moment that is not about convincing Saul of anything. Instead, it's a revelatory moment. Jesus identifies with the people that Saul has been harassing, revealing his sin to himself, exposing what was hidden in that self-justifying tangle of a mess. And I love, I love the way the biblical writers write and the work of God is because Paul, for the, maybe the first time in his life, is about to be able to see, and yet he cannot see anything around him. He has this reveal, this showing in his heart, and he can't see anything. And so his companions lead him into Damascus. And at the very same time that Paul is being led into Damascus, the Spirit shows up to a Christian disciple named Ananias. And he shows up to Ananias, and he's like, um, hey, dude, I want you to go hang out with Saul. And Ananias is like, who? He's like, you know the guy that like, killed some people? And Ananias is like, no, thank you. Pass. Send Peter. <laughs> and the spirit is like, no, it's going to be you. You're going to go. So he sends Ananias to Paul with a challenge for Ananias to invite, to speak over, to enter into relationship with this person he considered dangerous and a threat. And so here's what the text says. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way, as you were coming here, and he sent me so that you could, oh, this is good, see again and be filled by the Holy Spirit. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eye, and he could see, and he got up and was baptized. I love this story. I love this story, especially as an expression of what God does in people's lives and what Jesus is articulating in John chapter 16. God is at work in the life of Saul. No Christian convinces him that he's in sin. No Christian convinces him or forces him to see something. That is the work of the Spirit, a job that we just can't carry. God meets Saul on the road, reveals to him, shows him who he has been harassing, who he has been persecuting, confronting him with the truth of his harm and his sin, and begins to unravel and transform and bring new life. But that does not mean we as Christians don't have a job. We actually do have a job, a really important job. It is to partner, participate, and submit in the work the Spirit is doing. Ananias is still called to enter a space that is in all ways to him hostile. Just not in control of it. Dang it. 
And Ananias is called to move towards Saul, to touch him, to call him a brother, to extend his life to him, to enter into the vulnerability of this moment with him. And I think the same is true for the church today, that we are called to enter into hostile, sometimes strange, sometimes uncertain circumstances, extending the presence of Jesus as we go but we do so open-handed, trusting that the Spirit is the one renewing, healing, and revealing, and that it's not my job to do. My mentor and uh, program head in college is a dude named David Fitch. He has a really beautiful quote that I want to read to you that I think is a good summation of everything we've said. Fitch writes, The world cannot imagine a power that changes things without coercion or that does not depend on human effort, but instead relies on human participation in the healing power of the Spirit. When the church turns to coercion or control or force, it becomes indistinguishable from the world. But when it preys among the pain, is present to God's presence and brokenness, proclaims forgiveness and healing in Jesus, well, then it becomes the space that makes possible God's change. Missio, the invitation for us is to become a people of the Spirit of God who in humble submission to the work that God is doing creates spaces for a new kind of creative and healing power. One that makes us whole, one that brings life, one that might unravel the antagonisms and ideologies that have kept us so apart. I think the question for us, though, is will we lay down our own need for control? And will we trust that God is truly at work ahead of us? It's a tricky thing to do. And so, Missio, I just wanted to put up on the screen as we close here just three different prayer prompts. Spirit, disrupt, heal, reveal my ideology and sin. We're not, a, we're not immune to having our own convictions that are self-justifying. Spirit, help me to trust that you are at work and help me to let go of my need for control. And Spirit, show me where you are and already at work. So as we close, Missy, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to continue to worship. I'm going to invite us to the table. And I just invite you to use these three or maybe a different prayer that comes to your mind as prompts for laying down our need for control and coercion and inviting the Spirit to work in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words today. They're hard and uncomfortable and difficult and also really comforting and encouraging to me. Thank you for naming that there is a kind of conflict in this world that I feel so powerless to do anything about. God, thank you that I am not being asked to. Spirit, help me to lay down my desire to control, to force to coerce my outcomes? Would you help me to understand the work that you're doing, the life that you're creating, 
in the space of healing and presence you're making available to me and to those around us. And Spirit, would you lead us this week to our workplaces, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, wherever it is that we are, into the everyday spaces of our life. Would you lead us as participants with you? We're on the lookout for the souls in our lives. We're on the lookout for the places that you are moving and percolating and fermenting some new healing, some new work. Would you help us join? We pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.